Happy Sabbath, and a special greeting to the few of you who were not with us last night. <laughs> you missed a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, unless you know more about time travel than I do. So, <clears throat> but I do want to provide a little introduction, because what we're covering is, is a, a continuous thread. And so if you miss the beginning, you're at something of a disadvantage. Last night we had one of the, uh, the less common sermon topics. Last night we spoke about Lucifer. Because there is wisdom in knowing your enemy. Some of the highlights, so that you just have the background, <clears throat> Lucifer, of course, is the protagonist, or the antagonist, I should say, in the Great Controversy. The Great Controversy theme is, I would argue, one of the most profound and most far-reaching of contributions that the Adventist Church has to make in the, the, the realm of theology. You can't understand Adventists without understanding the Great Controversy. And so if you happen to not be an Adventist, you're in the right place. If you're trying to understand what these people are all about, this is really, I would argue, the most basic of fundamental propositions upon which Adventism is constructed. Just unconsciously, consciously, theoretically, philosophically, everything, it all stems from an understanding that we are involved in a great controversy between good and evil, and to this weekend, the, the purpose is to look at that just a little bit more. Interesting things from last night. Lucifer wanted to rule the earth. And in one of the, uh, the more, uh, if you're familiar with the letters and manuscripts releases from the writings of Ellen White, they were released about two years ago. One of the most fascinating statements that I've found in, in looking over that previously unavailable material, is Ellen White tells us that as the planning for Earth was going forward, the covering cherub came and presented his request that he be the prince of this world, but that that was not accorded to him. Jesus Christ would be the ruler of this world, and the law of heaven would be the standard law for this Earth. There are fascinating details, which I can't take the time to go into any further because we did that last night. And incidentally, for those who... Uh, may be interested or perhaps are listening on Audioverse, I will just mention that due to time constraints, this is not the full meal deal, uh, but there is a previous series of recordings, the, a five-part series that if, you, you know, if you're fascinated, as I, you know, I would like you to be because I find it fascinating, but if, you're, if you really want the, the whole thing, uh, there, will be, there is a series on, on Audioverse already. Uh, uh, from about two months back or something like that down at Ichi Pines. I didn't know they were recording it for Audioverse, but then all of a sudden, boom, there were. So today, however, we move on from beginning with Lucifer and we look at Christ, which is uh, more fitting for a Sabbath sermon, sermon, I think. Jesus, well, Lucifer said, the, uh, the subtitle for last night, Lucifer said, try something new. He said, try self-responsibility. Sounds good. It really was self-concern. It really was selfishness. And philosophically, you can make an interesting case that it, it wasn't, in some ways, that different from the law of heaven, which is service for others. Now, you, know, you look at that selfishness, service for others, yeah, and you see the difference. But it would have been... An interesting way, and, and we covered that last night, so I can't cover that anymore. However, Christ doesn't say that. Christ's subtitle here today is, let me show you. Let me show you. To carry the thread, we have to begin with Lucifer's accusations. If you go through, as I did, 134,000 hits in the Ellen White writings... I boil it down to there are only nine accusations which Lucifer brought against the government of heaven. My theory on that was, you know, if an argument starts and you can find out what the argument's over, then maybe you're better prepared to resolve the argument. 
And so I went looking for the accusations of Lucifer against the government of heaven, and I found nine. Angels are holy by nature and wise enough to govern themselves so they don't need God's law. God was unfair when he exalted Jesus above Lucifer. God is proud. God is selfish. God's law is defective and needs to be changed. And perhaps the measure of that change is neither angels nor human beings can obey God's law. Number seven, actually, we won't have time to touch on this at all other than for me to say that this is the one that everything hinges on. And if you want to go wading into really fascinating deep territory, look into Lucifer's charge on number seven. He said God's law is arbitrary. As a result of God saying, no, it is not arbitrary, Lucifer said, in that case, it makes forgiveness impossible. And number nine, God is lying about all the above. And since I see people diligently taking pictures of that slide, I will just simply mention that my PDFs of my presentations are always available on Audioverse, and you can get the whole thing from downloading it there. So you don't have to spend all the electrons necessary to record them here. You're welcome to. Okay, so these were the accusations. Now, I left the audience last night with the question, if you're God, uh, what do you do next? The ball is now in your court. What are you going to do about it? How do you respond to these accusations? The first eight would have logically or simply or reasonably invited an explanatory comment. God could say, well, let me discuss the, angels, the angelic nature. I can explain that to you. God could say, let me tell you about Jesus. I can explain that to you. God could say, let me explain what pride really is and how that works. None of that was possible because of the ninth accusation. The ninth accusation in, the, in terms of formal logic is called poisoning the well. When you say that your opponent is lying, it doesn't matter what he says. <laughs> you'll see how that played out. Now, what's interesting about this situation that God found himself in, the Godhead found themselves, however you want to phrase that. I'm not trying to pick a theological argument there. But anyhow, uh, however you want to deal with that, God now has to deal with these accusations. And, and you know, you would think that God being God He's probably saying, oh, I don't know, I could do it like this, or I could do it like that, I could, I could do this, I could do that. You know, God has a thousand means to provide for our needs, of which we know nothing. It wasn't that way with this. There was one way, only one way, and it's fascinating, the stuff that God couldn't do. How should the universe know that Lucifer is not a safe and just leader? To their eyes... He appears right. Lucifer kept up a good appearance. It looked fine. Everything he said sounded good. They cannot see as God sees beneath the outward covering. They cannot know as God knows. Then to work to unmask him and make plain to the angelic host that his judgment, Lucifer's judgment, is not God's judgment, that he has made a standard of his own and exposed himself to the righteous indignation of God would create a state of things which must be avoided. God couldn't go there. God desired that a change take place and that the work of Satan be brought out in its genuine aspect. But the exalted angel standing next to Christ was opposed to the Son of God. The underworking was so subtle that it could not be made to appear before the heavenly host as a thing it really was. Shattering one of our cherished childhood, childhood mantras, if you wish. No, God can't do anything. There are some things God can't do. It could not be made to appear as what it really was. Satan could not be presented to the universe at once in his real character. His crooked course must be allowed to continue until he should reveal himself as an accuser, a deceiver, a liar, and a murderer. And we looked last night at the issue of murder. And what we found was that murder is inherent in sin, which begins 
the moment you doubt, the moment you lose faith in God's love and his wisdom. And that's where Lucifer started. There was some point in time when God said, Lucifer, please do this, and Lucifer said, no, that's better. And the only way you can say that's better is to either say God's not smart enough to figure it out or to say God knows, but he's trying to get me to do what's not in my best interest. So wisdom or love, one or the other, and both rapidly had to go. Consequently, I would point out that still, some 6,000-odd-ish years later, the solution to the issue is righteousness by faith. Because unrighteousness began the moment faith was fractured. And the moment that happened, it came to murder. Because once I lose faith in God's love and his wisdom, his ability to care for me, I have to assume the care of myself. And since I do not have infinite resources, if there's only enough food for one and there's two of us, it's nothing personal, but I will kill you because I have to eat that food. That's what loss of faith does to us. Let's go on. Satan had disguised himself in a cloak of falsehood, and for a time it was impossible to tear off the covering so the hideous deformity of his character could be seen. He must be left to reveal himself in his cruel, artful, wicked works. And again, you know, impossible is not a word that we commonly associate with God. But it's true. Not only were there things that were impossible for God to do, there were things that he had to do. And, and we don't normally think of that either. You know, circumstances forcing God. There's stuff he couldn't do, and there's stuff he had to do. Well, <clears throat> kind of strange, but let's go on. God's purpose is to place things upon an eternal basis of security. Now, just eternal. It's never going to happen again. That's, that's the goal, okay? The, an eternal basis of security. Time must be given for Satan to develop the principles which were the foundation of his government. The heavenly universe must see, <clears throat> worked out the principles which Satan declared were superior to God's principles. God's order must be contrasted with Satan's order. The corrupting principles of Satan's rule must be revealed. The principles of righteousness expressed in God's law must be demonstrated as unchangeable, perfect, and eternal. And so once again, the idea of God being forced, if you wish, being limited, is stronger than we normally think. Notice these words. It doesn't look like he had a lot of choices. <laughs> Elwhite tells us there was only one way, actually. There were things that he had to do in order to arrive at his eternal basis of security. <clears throat> what I want you to notice right now, though, is the method to be used. In all these things that were required by the circumstances of the case, notice the method that God had to use. Satan must develop his principles. The universe must see these things worked out. God's order must be contrasted. Satan's rule must be revealed. God's law must be demonstrated. Everything to be gained is listed here as a matter of perception, of education, if you wish. The universe needed to understand stuff that they didn't understand. And it had to be shown because God had been charged with dishonesty. Mark this point well. This process of demonstration is the only tool in the heavenly arsenal. Unlike Lucifer, who has many, 
This is the only weapon that God uses in the great controversy. <clears throat> Notice as well that as, as far as Satan was concerned, the damage was all to be self-inflicted. He would reveal himself. It was his own demonstration of his corrupting principles that would defeat him. But Satan's failure could only discredit himself. It couldn't remove the doubts that he had created in the minds of the universe about God. So it wasn't enough to simply let Satan implode. That would take care of one side of the question, so to speak. But now there were doubts about God. How is God going to respond to that? He had to respond. He had to take the initiative. He had to do something. And the universe, they knew that. The unfallen worlds saw that the character of God could be vindicated only through this trial and conflict of the two forces. The attributes of God must be made to appear. Of the stability of his government, there must be no question. <clears throat> you know, we see this somewhat frequently in earthly politics. You've got two politicians, and they're saying terrible things about each other. And, you know, if you're the, the true, what's the word I want? Not patriot, but um, devotee of the political party. What's the word I want? There's a, there's a better word, but I can't think of it. But, you know, partisan. There you go. Thank you. If you're the true partisan, you will say, my guy is right and he is all wrong, or vice versa. But, you know, I suspect that there's a large proportion of the population of the citizenship of various countries that may look at these two politicians and say, what if they're both telling the truth about the other one? <laughs> we could have a tough choice going on here. <clears throat> God couldn't just let Satan discredit himself. He had to vindicate his own character. He had to show that he was indeed worthy of his position as ruler of all the worlds he had created. But how is he going to do that? Well, the simple answer is he just had to convince everyone in the universe that his government was the only one they wanted. Piece of cake. How do you do that? It's a pretty tall order. And you know... I surmise that there are created intelligences which actually have intelligence. They think for themselves. You know, in the United States, you're sort of conditioned here to Democrats and Republicans. But, you know, you go to some other countries and you might have 15 different political parties. How do, you, how, do you, yeah, how do you win when you've got 15 opponents? You know? I mean, how, do, how do you do this, right? Okay. Someplace out there in the universe, there could be someone watching who said, wow, Satan just really fouled up. I mean, that stuff he was advocating, that, that's really messed up. But, you know, God's idea, you know, like, that's kind of far on the other end. You know, I think we should do this somewhere in the middle. And, you know, it's really hard to argue with some of those things. You know, suppose you've got a, a major arterial street through a, a town, and there's, let's just say there's 50,000 people a day trying to get to work down that street. Speed limit is set at 40 miles an hour, and the people are really frustrated because you've got 50,000 vehicles going through there, and you need the speed limit to be like 50 just to, just to accommodate the traffic. And so they have a big civic forum, and people are making the case for raising the speed limit to 50, and then a young mother stands up. She says, I live on that street. I have four children under the age of five. 
I do my best, but you know and I know that one of these days the ball is going to bounce out in the street. 40 is too fast. It should be 30. Don't you care about my children? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really, maybe it should be 32. <laughs> you know? Maybe 37.439. How do you say what's perfect when you're making laws like that? What's God going to do? Well, he's got to convince everyone that they want his government. How do you do that? Huh? No verbal description could reveal God to the world. Through a life of purity, a life of perfect trust and submission to the will of God, a life of humiliation such as even the highest seraph in heaven would have shrunk from, God himself must be revealed to humanity. You remember the account probably in, I know it's in early writings, story of redemption, maybe it's in Patriarchs and Prophets too, I forget exactly. You remember when God and Christ met and they agreed again? on the plan of salvation, and they announced it, the angelic host, and the angel said, no, let me go. They didn't know what they were saying. If they had known what they were saying, they would have shrunk from it. This is how Jesus wins the universe. He says, this is what I'm willing to do to help those I've created. Anyone else want to do more? Anyone else even want to do that? There were no volunteers. And the divine response went ahead, which is why we have verses like this. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. No one else would take on that job. But notice again, this is a matter of revealing, of showing, of clarifying. It talks of the revelation up there. It's a matter of actually correcting our perception of God, of rewiring our brains. You know, in the medical world now, there's this, this whole neuroplasticity thing is like a big, a big idea. You know, It's kind of cool. As usual, God was a few thousand years ahead of us on that one. Uh, you know, we're, we're still playing catch up there. It's probably going to go on for a while yet. Um, but there's an educational process. Now, as, as a recovering teacher, I, I, I like the idea of, of people learning things. And this is what God had in mind for the entire universe. He says, I need to teach you. And in order to teach you, let me show you. How important is this? Without the correct knowledge of God, the human family would be divested of all divine strength. Stop right there. Don't read any further. Practice some self-control. I like vocabulary words. What does divested mean? Without? Stripped from... It's the opposite of invested. If I invest in your company, I'm giving you money. If I divest, right, you know, sometimes they get uh, the, such and such a school has a portfolio where they've invested in this country and we're mad at that country, so we want you to divest, right? You've heard of that? Okay. Without the correct knowledge of God, the human family would be divested of all divine strength. With false attributes kept before the mind as belonging to God, the human family would be the dupes of satanic lies and the subjects of satanic agencies, and he could practice upon their credulity with success. I, this is such a great vocabulary paragraph. So what is a dupe? 
Do you know where the root word comes from? A dupe is one who falls for someone else's duplicity. Ah. Two-facedness, and I got sucked in. I am now a dupe because someone else was practicing duplicity. What about credulity? What's credulity? Gullibility, yeah, okay. So just you know, let this, this, let this paragraph sink in a little bit. Without the correct knowledge, be divested of all strength, divine strength. With false attributes, we would be dupes. We would suffer because of our credulity. We'd be toast, I think. Christ loves the human race and has expressed this love in every action of his life. I put that one in there just because expressing the idea of how important was this to Jesus? And it says here there was every action. It was something he kept in mind on a continuous basis. Every act of Christ's ministry was far-reaching in its purpose. It comprehended more than appeared in the act itself. You know, one of the things that I admire about Christ is he was, he, he's smart. <laughs> you know? He's smart. He thinks things through, and he thinks them through ahead of time. So everything he did, it, it, it comprehended more than dummies like me, you know, are likely to see. A wise purpose underlay every act of Christ's life on earth. Everything he did was important in itself and in its teaching. Another good reason to spend an hour a day thinking on the life of Christ. Were the mind of man capable of understanding his dealings, every act of his earthly life would stand forth important, complete, and in harmony with his divine mission. Now we're shifting here. We're going to kind of take our focus to that divine mission. Jesus came to earth to teach men how to live a life of self-denial and self-sacrifice and how to carry out practical religion in their daily lives. He labored constantly for one object, all his powers were employed for the salvation of men, and every act of his life tended to that end. Now follow the logic of this here. Do a little syllogism thing with me. He labored constantly for one thing. If everything he did was for one object, and he did this, I know that this was for one object. Yeah? With me on that? Okay. All his powers were employed for the salvation of men. Every act of his life tended that end. Now go back up to the top. Why did Jesus come to earth? To teach men how to live a life of self-denial and self-sacrifice. Which is to say that self-denial and self-sacrifice are necessary components of the salvation of men. Just kind of follow that through, okay? So how did he do this? What, what kind of tactics did he use on a day-to-day -day basis? What, what did he do? The great object that brought Christ to the earth was to reveal the Father. God is love. This was the great truth that Christ came to the world to reveal. The object of Christ's mission to the world was to reveal the Father. In all his ministry, all his self-denial and self-sacrifice, Christ's object was to reveal God to the world. Now, notice something here, that last statement. Where did we last see self-denial and self-sacrifice? 
they were essential components of the one object that he was laboring to do, which was the salvation of men. He came to teach us self-denial and self-sacrifice. But it was self-denial and self-sacrifice that he used to reveal the Father. If self-denial and self-sacrifice reveal the Father, and we are to learn self-denial and self-sacrifice, what do you suppose our job might be? Hang on to that thought. We'll come back to it. Christ exalted the character of God, attributing to him the praise and giving to him the credit of the whole purpose of his own mission on earth. What's that next little punctuation mark? Oh, yeah, I told you I'm a recovering teacher here. This is not a hyphen. <laughs> Hyphens are little short ones. Hyphens are used for hyphenating words. This is an M dash. It's called an M dash because it's the same width as a capital M. Okay? There's another one that's a little bit smaller. It's called an N dash. Guess what? It's as wide as. Yeah, okay? And that one is used to replace the word two. So if I say April dash June, it's an N dash, not an M dash and not a hyphen. Typography is a wonderful thing. You should study it sometime. Anyhow, <laughs> now this is used, in this case, this M dash is used to set off this separate element, which is a restatement of what she just said. Okay? So we're talking about the whole purpose of his mission on earth, which was to set men right through the revelation of God. Now this is fascinating. I find it fascinating. His whole purpose was to reveal the Father. But I thought he was here to save people. Yes, he's here to save people. That's the setting men right part. It's a twofer, right? <laughs> you get two for the price of one. Self-denial, self-sacrifice, reveal the Father, and are the active agents in setting men right. Maybe it's a little strange sounding. You know, we seldom think of salvation this way. Here we see the whole purpose was to set men right. And this was accomplished by helping us see what God is like. Let me show you. The statement continues, however. That's, since we're on the topic, what do we call those dots? It's an ellipsis. Very good. Okay, very good. The statement continues. When the object of his mission was attained, another M dash, the revelation of God to the world, that's the object of his mission, a restatement there, the Son of God announced that his work was accomplished and that the character of the Father was made manifest to men. When was that announcement? It is finished. The revelation of the character of the Father required the self-denial and self-sacrifice of the cross. Up to that point, it was started. Here, it was finished. Again, this is the object of his mission, right? Now, when Jesus was in this process, he, he, he could not have done less than he did and, it, and, and succeeded. Anything less than his life as he lived it, would have been an a, a incomplete revelation of the character of his father. But he had, a, he had a boundary he had to be careful not to cross in revealing the father. I'm glad Jesus works with great precision. God sent his son into the world to reveal so far as could be endured by human sight the nature and attributes of the invisible God. You know, there were times when I think he, he kind of deliberately let that kind of slip over the line just a little bit, you know? Those occasions you read about when divinity flashed through humanity, like the, the, everyone in the temple is running away from this guy standing there with, he's not really hitting anybody or anything, and they're all, <laughs> they're all running away, terrified by the divinity flashing through humanity. What's this next statement? Christ revealed all of God 
that sinful human beings could bear without being destroyed. <laughs> I'm glad he knows the limits. We are but dust. <clears throat> Christ is the perfect representation of his father, the father. His life of sinlessness lived on this earth in human nature is a complete refutation of Satan's charge against the character of God. Remember the accusations? Christ's life was a complete refutation. This was not just random, oh, I'll just go down there and have a happy day type of thing. This was targeted. This was intentional. This was tactical. This was planned to refute the arguments of Satan. I, I find it fascinating. I don't, there, there's a, a number of other statements that, that point to the level of precision. Anything more would have, would have killed us. Anything less would have not worked. There was only this one path that Christ could have walked. It had to be a perfect revelation. How perfect was perfect? You know? I mean, sometimes I try to... Actually, I try to avoid, but you know, sometimes I get in a position where I'm actually trying to represent what my wife thinks. <laughs> this is dangerous territory. <laughs> and I, I fail with startling regularity. <laughs> and there are times when she tries to portray my, the subtleties of my thought, you know, and, and you know, it's, it's hard to do that. How perfect a representation did Jesus have to give? Had God the Father come to our world and dwelt among us, veiling his glory and humbling himself that humanity might look upon him, the history that we have of the life of Christ would not have been changed in, its, in unfolding its record of his own condescending grace. In every act of Jesus, in every lesson of his instruction, we are to see and hear and recognize God. In sight, in hearing, in effect, it is the voice and movements of the Father. If two weeks before Gabriel came and visited Mary, God and Jesus, God the Father and God the Son, had been sitting around chatting, and one of them said, let's shake it up a bit, let's switch places, we would never have known. <laughs> we would never have known. The life, the history that we have of the life of Christ would not have been changed. When God says perfect, he actually means perfect. That's gone. Jesus said this, of course. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can he say, show us the Father? I already did that, Philip. <laughs> right? Okay. <clears throat> Jesus could not express in words to the understanding of man the love of the Father. He could only say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's a problem here. Words don't work. These are good words. It's the most famous verse in the Bible. You know, these are wonderful words, you know. Blessed words, wonderful words of life. You know, we sing about this sort of stuff. They didn't do the job. Jesus needed something more than words. And fortunately, the statement continues. But he did express the love of God in his actions. Do you want to know how to express the love of God? Words are good. Do something with them. <laughs> Do something along with the words. <clears throat> the Savior of the world devoted more time and labor to healing the afflicted of their maladies than to preaching. Well, why not? If you get more bang for the buck out of the actions, spend your time with the actions, right? Now, the words are important. The words have to explain the actions. You know, people might misinterpret the actions. The words are the, the theory, the explanation, the, the clarification, perhaps. The words are important. We need to preach. I get a little annoyed when I see this cutesy little thing that I, I don't know where it came from, but you know, yeah, wherever you go, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. 
That's crazy. I'm sorry. You know, yes, everywhere you go, do do good things. You know, show the love of God. But take the opportunity. Why would you not clarify it to the person if you have the the the, the chance to do so? Yeah. Preach the gospel. Heal the sick. Do what Jesus did. Well, okay. Onward. Christ came to this world for no other purpose than to display the glory of God that man might be uplifted by its restoring power. This revelation of God is, we don't give it the credit it deserves. It's an influence. It's a power. How to win friends and influence, well, you don't always win friends, but how to influence people. <laughs> Christ revealed God to his disciples in a way that performed in their hearts a special work. Such as, he, such as he has long been urging us to allow him to do in our hearts, the power of God's love demonstrated and explained is not less today than it was in his day. In passing now, we need to notice one particular aspect of Christ's dealing with Judas. Now, for those of you who were not here last night, we noticed in passing last night, we'll pick this up in the meeting this afternoon, but we noticed in passing last night an interesting statement, a troubling statement to me. It said that Christ allowed Lucifer to develop his deceitfulness and to, I don't remember the exact wording here, but, but develop his, his character and his deceptions before anything was done to help save the other angels. I might look at that and say, God, that's kind of negligent. You might think that too. You know what? We both need to get a grip and deal with it because it's consistent. Now, Jesus, dealing with Judas, Late in Jesus' ministry, had Christ unmasked Judas, this would have been urged as a reason for the betrayal. And though charged with being a thief, Judas would have gained sympathy even among the disciples. The Savior reproached him not and thus avoided giving him an excuse for his treachery. Now, that was wise. I find that God is quite consistently wise. But, you know, every course of action has ramifications. Even wise actions. They influence things. And the question here is, what did this mean to the other disciples? Jesus had said things like this, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But he never said that about Judas. At the Last Supper, Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. And Judas goes off to, make, to, to finalize the bargain with the priests for the betrayal of Christ. And the other disciples thought he was going to buy some food. <clears throat> Hang on to that thought. Jesus' treatment of Judas may strike us as odd. We look at it and say, oh, yeah, yeah, and we see how it, it worked with Judas. That made sense, did that with Judas. But what about everybody else? It seems he missed a lot of opportunities to help the loyal disciples. But Jesus doesn't work that way because he is wise as serpents and harmless as doves, right? Jesus was working out a master plan and he was directly addressing the accusations of Lucifer. Satan charged God with possessing the attributes that he himself possessed, Christ came to this world to reveal God's character as it really is. He is the perfect representation of the Father. His life of sinlessness, lived on this earth in human nature, is a complete refutation 
of Satan's charge against the character of God, very similar to the one we just read a while ago. Maybe it's the same one, I don't remember. But I want you to look at that again. It's a complete refutation of Satan's charge against the character of God. Now, so here's, here's a, a unique thing to Adventism. It's common in the Christian world to understand that every issue that might have been an issue was resolved by Jesus at the cross, right? The debt of sin was paid, boom, good. There is a troubling question that arises from that, though. Why are we still here? And specifically, why does God continue to allow suffering? I remember 20-some years ago, uh, some of you are too young, but you know, uh, those of you who can remember 20 years ago, the Alfred P. Murrah building in Oklahoma, remember the bombing, that whole thing? I was living at that time 24 miles east of Oklahoma City. And Oklahoma, having the mountains that it does, 24 miles east of town, that explosion rattled the windows on my house. A week later, Billy Graham came to have a ceremony. And I believe it was announced in advance he was going to discuss why do bad things happen to good people. And I said, this will be fascinating. I was, I was profoundly disappointed. Effectively, what he said is, we just don't know. And, well, he was being honest, so maybe I shouldn't be disappointed. The Christian world does not know. They don't have a reason for why sin exists. Is it God, and God's busy this week? He can't just, you know, just bring the curtain down? Don't ask me to worship a God who allows sin and suffering to exist needlessly. Which is to say, philosophically, there better be a need. But what is it? If the life that Christ lived on this earth in human nature is a complete refutation of Satan's charge against the character of God, why isn't the argument done? Notice what she says. It's a complete refutation of Satan's charge against the character of God. That is a subset of the nine accusations. There are ones still remaining. So let's go through these quickly. We have time to do that. So here are these accusations. Now let's look at these uh, you know, from a, a position following the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Okay, So New Testament time period. God said the only way to deal with these accusations was through the process of demonstration. That's good. That's what Jesus did. How are we looking? Yeah. How are things at this point, New Testament times? How are we looking on this list? Okay, so let's look at number one. <clears throat> Angels are holy by nature and wise enough to govern themselves so they don't need God's law. How does that claim stand up in the minds of the unfallen universe? Anybody going to believe that one anymore? After the crucifixion? No, no. Okay, so that one's done. God was unfair when he exalted Jesus above Lucifer. I mean, the argues, you know, argument there is, you know, basically, hold it, how come he got the promotion? And, and bear in mind that that, that whole concept, and, and no one talks of, of the exaltation of Christ, you know, that, that, that God, had to God the Father had to introduce him to the angels as the Son of God. He had to explain that. Jesus apparently, this is my feeble effort to try and make sense out of things, apparently Jesus just, um, oh, I lost my word again, but just routinely takes on the role of manifesting the, the attributes and the character of God in the guise, if you wish, of lower beings. Okay, That's the only way I can really figure that out, that that Lucifer thought he should get the job. He didn't see that there was a categorical difference between him and Jesus. <clears throat> and so he said, God was unfair. He gave the promotion to the wrong guy. Well, 4,000 years down the road, after Lucifer has crucified in, in, in Christ, and incidentally, here's an interesting thing, in Desire of Ages, it says that at the crucifixion there, Lucifer revealed himself as a murderer, picking up our thought from last night, right? Revealed himself. How come it took 4,000 years for people to catch on that this guy was, was, was a murderer? 
And the answer is simple. <clears throat> he had the perfect dodge. For 4,000 years, he could say, don't blame me. You can quibble about whether we use a lethal injection or we hang them or use a firing squad or, or gas chamber. There we go. There's probably some others. You can quibble about how they die, but don't blame me. It's God's law that says sinners have to die. You may recall that, speaking for Lucifer here, you may recall that I'm not in favor of that law, but don't blame me for those guys. That changed with Jesus because for the first and only time in all of the universe, an innocent being died. Lucifer revealed himself as a murderer at that point. So questions one and two, I submit, were off the table. What about three and four? After the crucifixion? Nobody's buying that anymore. What about five and six? The law is defective and needs to be changed. Nobody can keep it. You know, some things are just nicely resolved with demonstration. There have been individuals who have doubted when I told them that I can, in fact, bench press 400 pounds. There are some who look at my somewhat scrawny physique and they question the veracity of that statement. But if I were to uh, use this little bench right over here and bench press 400 pounds, the official term for that is nah, 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 nah. <laughs> okay? When you say it can't be done and they do it, you just lost. So five and six... And no, I can't bench press 400 pounds. But anyhow, but <laughs> it might be fun, but you know, I, I'm not sure about that. I've never done it. So anyhow, <laughs> but five and six are gone. That's progress. We're up to 66%. Two-thirds of Satan's accusations are now resolved through the life of Christ. There are still three. But they will be addressed. Unfortunately, these three items extend the reign of sin. The time of the cross all the way down to today. Why? Because these items require yet another revelation. They require a demonstration that has not yet been made. Why not? Jesus was here. Why didn't he take care of that? In one sense, he did, but in another sense, no, he didn't. We see this most clearly by looking at one of a unique expression. It's a common expression in all White's writings. Let me dispel some of the suspense on this. The problem here is that these last three require a revelation, a demonstration through people like you and me. We are the reason that sin still exists 2,000 years this side of the cross. Our failure to provide that demonstration is the problem. This is not an accusation against the government or against the character of God. These are accusations against the wisdom of the role of humanity in the universe. We'll see that. Ellen White speaks commonly of Jesus as our substitute and surety. She uses it more than 300 times in just the, the normal published works, right? And another 130 some odd times in the letters and manuscripts. It's quite common. Anytime she's saying something that much, you might think, wow, must, she must be quoting Bible. But this is not Bible. The, the Bible doesn't use that expression, substitute and surety. It's kind of interesting. There's another prime example of that when she speaks of faith that works by love and purifies the soul. The Bible doesn't say that. You have to piece three different verses together to get that. But that's her expression of trying to get, you know, that's, that's just the, you know, her literary effort to get across a certain idea. Same with substitute and surety. Now, substitute seems like a simple enough concept. We don't have to get confused on that. But the question arises, what does she mean by this surety thing? So, 
let's look for some examples of her use of Christ as surety when she's not pairing it up with substitution, right? Does that make sense? So we can isolate the one concept, okay? Oh, I, I went ahead of myself. <clears throat> Here we go. This is the 1828 Webster's Dictionary definition of the word surety. This is pretty much what Ellen White would have grown up with, one would think. Notice we've got quite a few definitions here. But we can kind of draw a line between four and five. The first four, surety is a guarantee of a positive outcome. The last three, and seven's kind of a, yeah, five and six in particular, are more a guarantee that if things go south, we'll fix it. See the difference? The first four guarantee the positive outcome. Five and six say, I'll be held responsible. It's kind of like dad signing, you know, co-signing, junior wants to buy a car, right? Hey, dad, will you co-sign on the loan? <laughs> it may or may not be a good idea. Uh, <laughs> okay, so let's look at her use of surety. God with us is the surety of our deliverance from sin, the assurance of our power to obey the law of heaven. The Redeemer of the world in the wilderness of temptation fought the battle upon the point of appetite in our behalf as our surety. He overcame, thus making it possible for man to overcome in his name. Christ came to our world as man's surety, preparing the way for him to gain the victory by giving him moral power. Christ came to our world to be man's surety, to overcome in his behalf. That sounds like substitution, doesn't it? Overcome in his behalf, to live for him a sinless life, that in his power they might obtain the victory over sin. Every eye in the unfallen universe is bent upon those who profess to be Christ's followers. Here in this atom of a world, an earnest warfare is going on, a battle in which Christ, our substitute and surety, has engaged in our behalf and conquered. So why are they watching us? Jesus already did it. Jesus paid it all. <laughs> why would they be watching us? Because the paragraph continues. Now we, Christ's purchased possession, must become soldiers of his cross and conquer in our own behalf, on our own account, through the power and wisdom given us from above. The influence of the cross of Calvary is to vanquish every earthly and spiritual evil power, and we need to know the plan of the battle that we may work in harmony with Christ. This is the surety. Christ says, I have put into motion an influence that I guarantee is going to produce this result. Time to close. Last slide. Pray as did Moses. Lord, reveal to me thy glory. A revelation of the goodness, the tenderness, the love of Jesus toward fallen man will cause self to sink into nothingness and will exalt Jesus. Lift him up. The man of Calvary, talk of Jesus and his matchless love. There is where many who present the truth fail. They talk doctrines, but do not dwell upon the matchless, forbearing love of Jesus. And this statement doesn't say it, but the other ones have. And they don't carry it out in their actions. Jesus could not give a verbal description, but he could reveal in his actions. Earlier you heard a brief plug for Pathway to Health. I'm a big fan. It's a revelation. Actions of the love of God. We will close with that. I would ask you to come back this afternoon. We will look at a more modern day illustration of both Lucifer's methods and Christ's methods. And then in our final meeting, we'll be looking ahead because everything we've talked about up to that point serves as a pattern to understand the loud cry and the omega of apostasy at the final day. Thank you very much. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.